We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 362. Been going over seven years and we're still at it. I'm Trevor, the Iron Fist. With me as always, Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. And with us in spirit and in audio, <laughs> Scott the Velvet Glove, without a functioning video, but seemingly with a functioning audio. Scott, how are you? Scott, talk to me. <laughs> oh, no. Seriously. Seriously. You can't do this to me, Scott. Oh, that's funny. That is we, funny. We, we had video at the beginning of this. At seven yep. o'clock. Yep. And then we lost the video, but we had audio. And literally, we were speaking to Scott before I played the intro, and we said, let's just work with the audio. We'll go with that. And uh, you oh, are there. You are there. I am Scott, here. It how just are you? bloody drops out whenever you play that intro music. It just, I thought to myself, we're going to have exactly the same problem this week as what we had last week. But anyway, I don't have a camera, so I'm sure people can remember what I look like. Maybe the regulars can, but anyway, hey. I am fully clothed too, by pa- the way. Pants off podcasting. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, you should be just... Pants off podcasting. Yeah. Exactly. I could do that. Yeah. Well, Joe and I just got our underpants on down below. Mm. Yeah, so, I know yeah. that, but, you know, I've got to get up and go to the fridge, so I could be, you know, I <laughs> don't want to get caught in that with the uh, with the camera. Right. So well, anyway. You are living in rural Queensland, or regional yeah, Queensland I know. now, Scott. Yes. It is regional Queensland and you you can get away with virtually everything up here. Like, you know, I went out to one of our premier restaurants and all that sort of stuff with the directors a couple mm. of months ago and I got dressed up. They just <laughs> arrived in shorts and a T-shirt and scuffs and that type of thing. I thought to myself, okay, this is regional Queensland. And I haven't worn any long trousers outside of the office since I've been up here because it's too bloody hot to. So anyway. Okay. And life's treating you well up there, Scott. Yeah, it is. It's treating me okay. Yeah. You you recommend regional Queensland to anybody looking for a change in life or just a better job? A tree change. Mm. Uh, Yeah. It's, you do have to get used to the fact it is a slower pace of life up here. We don't have any public transport that you can really look at. Mm-hmm. You know, they do have buses, but they don't seem to run all that frequently and that type of thing. The Everything I need is up here, except the one thing I do miss is a, I do miss having competitions around the cinemas because we've only got one cinema up here, that's events, and they charge like wounded bulls. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in the yeah. chat room is uh, John and Bronwyn, and yes, Scott's got audio, but he doesn't have video. Exactly. Problems at Scott's end on this occasion. So <laughs> yeah, so you'll just you'll just hear him, but not see him for this episode. G'day, um, Bronwyn. G'day, John. Yeah. So all right. Oh, and Andrew says tree changes can go south too. That's correct. So that's the other option. All right. Well. Is this um, Andrew Jackson? Is that the same Andrew Jackson that I went to university with all those years ago? He looks too young for that, Scott. Yeah. So, 
judging by the profile picture. But exactly. Maybe, yeah. You never know. Mm. Okay. We're going to talk about Twitter and Mastodon, Dictator Dan and the uh, newspapers down there. We're going to talk about uh, negative gearing, average wage, oil prices, computer chips, population, Brazil, fascism, Ukraine update, submarine, Scott. Can't have you on without. I mean, it was way, probably back in episode five or six, I was starting to rant about submarines. Then you got onto something good and you haven't let it go, have you? <laughs> that's right. Can't help myself. So, yeah, that's all ahead of us. And uh, Andrew Jackson, QIT, QUT, Scott. Yeah, I did go to QUT. Yeah, if he was back in the QIT days, then that's a while ago. So Yeah, well, I was at QUT. Yeah, so I was at QIT and then it changed to QUT, so, yeah. Do you know who right. else was at QIT? Who? The owner of the Ark Encounter. Ah, Ham. Ken Ham. Really? Yes. Is that right? Is that Apparently right? he's a graduate of QIT. Yeah, is that right? <clears throat> We've exported... And was a science teacher in Brisbane. Yes. We've, we've exported some terrible things to the US. Ken, Ken Ham and Rupert Murdoch. I mean, mm. yeah. So hey, there you go. For those up. people missing Scott, I've got a picture up. Oh, well done. Mm. You did well to sneak that up there. Good on you. Well, there was a photo of me at the Brisbane airport. Yeah. Yeah. Complete with masks. So, mm-hmm. all, all right. Let's briefly talk about uh, Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. And the Twitterverse is just going into meltdown because they fear that it's going to go to rack and ruin and they're looking for alternatives to spend time on and do what they want to do. So because he initially quoted blue ticks would cost $20 a month and then who's the author, Stephen? Who's the guy who wrote the horror flicks? Horror. Stephen King. Stephen King, I think, was having a... Twitter debate with him saying, if you're going to be charging people 20 bucks, I'm out of here for a blue tick. You know, this is the tick that all, you know, indicates that you're an authorised, genuine person on Twitter. And Elon Musk said, oh, well, let's make it $8. You know, the point wasn't that Stephen King didn't have $20 to stump up. He just felt he shouldn't pay any money at all. So mm-hmm. anyway, Elon took that as an opportunity to haggle and it now seems that they're going to favour people who have paid the 8 bucks and their tweets are going to appear at the top of the timeline. And if you haven't paid that, you probably your tweets won't get much prominence. And people fear it's going to turn into a real shit fight in there. So they're looking for other alternatives. And the one that seems to be the likely replacement, if any, is Mastodon. So, Joe, we were talking about it earlier, and it looks a little bit like Twitter, but this one is not owned by anybody. It's all open source um, do you want to quickly explain what Mastodon is to the yeah informed? the the original intent from the guy was uh, effectively a Twitter that wasn't moderated by big tech that didn't have an algorithm that pushed certain paid content to the front and adverts to the front and was going to be completely open and so effectively it's a federation of servers you find a server. Yeah, people host servers of their own free will and they are responsible for content moderation and they federate with other servers. So the idea is that basically as long as you're federated with another server, you get whatever feeds you want, unmoderated, un, unfiltered from them. 
Now, Truth Social, which is Trump's free social media, is actually based on Mastodon. And there were some initial arguments as to him stealing open source software and, and not making the source code available. Nah. Shock horror. <laughs> so although it's based on the same platform and in theory could federate with everyone else, mm. most most servers will have blocked it and will choose not to federate with it. Yep. And so you you basically get a username and then at site name. It's very much like an email. So you have a user at server mm. and, and and much the same way that email is open source. So it's it's an open standard. Anybody can set up their own mail server. Mastodon's much the same. You can set up your own server or you can find someone who has equivalent social values and then join their server and and assume that your contents will be suitably tailored by people who match your values hmm. so i've joined and i'm trying to work out what i've done but i've i'm at trevor at oz.social so as i understand it oz.social is one of these servers hmm. it talks to a whole bunch of other servers so people can be sort of it, it just gives you a, like a home address if you like but it doesn't prevent you from interacting with other people on other servers if you can just find them you can add them to your feed to follow them it just means that at oz.social there are particular moderators who are responsible for that particular server who have their own rules as to how hard or easy they are when it comes to abusive language or things like that so each server has its own level of supervision anyway for one reason or another, I decided to go onto the oz.social, aus.social, and I think people will end up there. It's got a similar feel to Twitter. The only thing is you've got to try and find all the people that you used to follow on Twitter and find where they are on Mastodon if they are there and sort of start following them again, which anyway, there's tools out there to do it and there's time and it'll just be interesting to see if the sort of Twitterverse migrates over there because Twitter's been good in terms of getting content for this podcast and it's been really good for the video clips as well because it's been really easy to download clips off of twitter but i don't know how easy it's going to be off oz or off mastodon we will see but one thing to note is on, i suppose it depends on how quickly twitter does implode and mm. if it does implode the way the doom says it's going to then if it does implode quite quickly, well, Elong's just done his dough. And secondly, then Mastodon could pick up the shattered remnants and go with it. Yes. Yeah, it could do. So it's entirely possible. Who knows how it's going to end up? So, yeah, if you're in the chat room, Scott's with us. No video, but we have his audio. So he's with us. And one thing picture pointed out. There in the top right-hand corner. Hmm. One thing that was pointed out to me was Mastodon... Direct messages are not encrypted. And so, although they're not shared with everyone, they are still not private. Right. Just as Meaning, a, if you send a direct message, you can be tracked down. Yeah. Any of the server operators can see it, basically. Right. Okay. That's kind of what I would have thought would be the case. So, no surprise there. Scott, have you been yeah. keeping up with? Dictator Dan and the Victorian state election down there? I've been watching a little bit because I I did slip Fiona Patton a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. 
because she seemed to be standing up to the Christians and that type of thing, which I thought was very good. And we needed to keep that sort of pressure on them. So I slipped her a hundred bucks. I haven't really been watching the whole thing except this, you know, the steps that took out, took down a premier that came out. Yes. And, you know, that was on crikey and that sort of stuff. I was reading about that and it sounded like it was a media beat up that they yes. were, you know, it sounded like it was a beat up by the, not Fox News, who we got, the Rupert Murdoch papers, the Murdoch press. Herald Sun and also The Age have both been at it. Really? And the Age has been too? Mm. So there's two stories, well, so old very stories. Disappointed the Age has gone that way. Yeah. So one relates to a car accident that the family had where his wife was driving and a cyclist T-boned the car. So the cyclist hit the car in the side. And this is all, you know, eight years ago or something crazy like that, maybe even a decade ago. It's a long time ago. And they're, they're referring to the story where the, where the cyclist involved is kind of not happy, but no specifics as to why he's not happy. And there's just this general buzz about, oh, this is what happened. But it's such old news and it's, there's no specific allegation, but it's a, they're trying to, to throw mud where they've got none and they're just sort of waving their arms around. It's a really pathetic... It's um, really very pathetic and I think it says more about the Liberal opposition than it does about Dan Andrews' government because... My understanding, and, you know, Bronwyn, you can fill me in if I'm wrong, but my understanding is the Liberal opposition is hopeless. They have got a absolute loser at the top who has been quite, well, not complicit, but he hasn't done anything about the Christian takeover of the party. Mm. And now you've got all these nutters that are running and that type of thing, and they're going to actually dominate their, their upper house. Yeah, so the papers are completely silent about that issue. But exactly. They're, they're putting front-page stories about old news and it's not even just the, the, the Liberal opposition. It's just this sort of Nine Fairfax and Murdoch rags who are trying to run a smear where they've got nothing to smear and they're just rehashing a story. The other one is in relation to some steps that he fell down and injured himself quite badly and was off work for quite a while. And it's admittedly a low set of steps, like there's you know, one, two, three of them sort of thing, barely half a metre off the ground. But they seem to be, without saying it, suggesting how could somebody have injured themselves so badly on such a small set of steps and there's got to be something more to this. And it just totally ignores the fact that you can just all over on flat ground, particularly as you're getting older, and break all sorts of bones and have all sorts of injuries. And there's nothing unusual at all in somebody having massive back pain in particular or other injuries, broken bones, from falling down a relatively small set of steps. But again, there's no concrete sort of allegation here. It's just this, oh, look at those steps. They're the ones he fell off and, and kind of... Insinuating he was drunk? And, and trying to lay out a row of dots 
for the reader to connect and somehow come up with some conspiracy. It's the most pathetic thing that's happened. And uh, every journalist involved should hang their head in shame and Media Watch did a sort of a good expose on it as well. And it just shows how rotten the media is in that they are having to try to drum up some sort of issues out of things that are 10 years old that have been dealt with. So Dan Andrews, I think, has dealt with it quite well. Here's a little clip from him. Oh, gee, Scott, at the risk of having you bounce out, if I yeah, play, no. play this clip and <laughs> hopefully Scott doesn't disappear when I do this. Fingers crossed, everybody. Thoughts and prayers. There's not much that surprises me, really. But, look, can any of you tell me what the point of this story is? Oh, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know what the point of this story is. Can any of you explain it to me? Well, maybe, well, I don't know, what, you're going to interview the stairs next. Like, people can go as low as they want. I'm not coming there with you. At the bottom of the stairs? <laughs> Scott, you're still with us. Fantastic. I'm still with you. That was great. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, now, the next question is, did the video actually play for the listeners? Yeah, that's the next question, because I did spend quite some time doing test, little test things, and tell us in the chat room, did the video actually play, and not just the audio, that'd be nice to know, because I did spend some time with people in Ukraine on that one, so that'd be good to know. So anyway, look, I reckon this is a good reason why Queensland Labor, for example, should get rid of religious instruction lessons and replace it with media literacy lessons because they know that the mainstream press, owned by the likes of Murdoch and Nine Fairfax, is going to be anti-Labor. They, they know it. And they've got to educate the future generations as to how to view this stuff and, and read between the lines and figure it all out. And if, you know, if I was Labor or in charge, I'd be... I'd be wanting kids to have an hour a week at least media literacy training. And I know they do that in Finland, I'm pretty sure. I think we did a story on. We're getting no audio. Ah, there we go. Just had to put it in. So, yeah. So if you have any connection with the Queensland government, Mel out there, put that forward as a suggestion. Get rid of religious instruction and put media literacy in because it's just incredible the lengths that these newspapers are going to. Fortunately, no young government, people don't read them. No government wants their electorate media literate. That well, wouldn't be good for them. Well, I think if you're a Labor government, given that the media is against you more often than not, it would be in your interest to have them educated. You'd think so, but... See, I had a, I had a meeting up here with, the, uh, with our local member up here I was only in there for perhaps 20 minutes thereabouts and I talked to her and that type of stuff and I said to her, the primary reason I was in there was to try and get them get them to accept that religious instruction was wrong. Now, she didn't actually agree with me. She also didn't disagree with me. And she actually, um, one thing that really got her attention was when I said, if you want the nurse the temple of Satan to stop its nonsense, all you've got to do is back away from the... All you got to do is back away from RI and then they will pack up and go. And, you know, she actually really listened to that. Really? But, okay. Yeah. So, you know, your, you know, your court case and all that sort of stuff, yes, it didn't work, but 
it appears to have got their attention. Okay. Just an update on that. We still have not heard anything from the DPP, so nobody's tried to contact Robin and interview him or anything like that. So we're just going to let it sit for a few more months and maybe after Christmas, early New Year, maybe the 12-month anniversary, we will maybe try and get some definitive answer from them. So at the moment, fortunately, nothing as expected and hopefully it'll all go, we'll know for sure in a Another six months, we'll be able to say it's definitely gone away. So, so yeah, that's the latest on that one. No, you know, all quiet on the Western Front as far as that's concerned. So, no news is good news. Mm. So, okay, article in the Guardian. So, Scott, still on religious matters. Federal Attorney General Mark Dreyfus has asked the Australian Law Reform Commission to review the country's religious exemptions for schools, and how that should be dealt with in federal anti-discrimination law. So asking the Law Reform Commission to review it, as if it hasn't been reviewed enough in the last four or five years. But At least he's got the whole... He appears to be doing the right thing by getting the Law Reform Commission to look at it first. Mm. And then after that, they can come back with suggestions and all that sort of shit for a religious discrimination bill. Yes, yeah. except, except according to this article, what the Law Reform Commission will look at, they'll be addressing Labor's three main principles for anti-discrimination law. So these are apparently Labor's three main principles. That without any law not discriminate against a student on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy. Sounds okay. Also, that it not discriminate against a member of staff for those same reasons. Sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy. So basically they're two of Labor's three main principles. The third apparently Labor principle is that schools can continue to build a community of faith by giving preference in good faith, to persons of the same religion as the educational institution in the selection of staff. So, provided they don't discriminate against staff or students on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy, then it's okay. And this totally ignores, this is just a green light to say, guess what? Schools, it's okay. If you want to discriminate against somebody because they're an atheist, go right ahead. Or if they're a Satanist, discriminate against them. Go right ahead. Or if you're a Christian school and the person is non-Christian, go right ahead. It's just appalling that this is a Labor Party principle, that they'll protect people for gender and sex things, but they won't protect them if they're simply an atheist. Terrible by the Labor Party. Scott, am I just ranting or have I got a point? No, I think you've got a point there. But, you know, it's it's like, you know, you get reminded of things from Facebook and all that sort of stuff. I got reminded of something that I posted years ago when it was Dan Andrews was first being elected. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, the first 10 minutes or something like that, of, no, only 10% of the voters being counted, but the 
the move to the Labor opposition is 15 or 20 percent or whatever it was. And I said, you know, there's a very good message in that for the for the Tories back away from the God botherers back away. Mm. And I honestly believe that's very good advice for both sides of government, both the opposition and the and the government, because I think that they've both got to back away from the God botherers. And then the God botherers can go off and try and set up their own bloody family first and get knocked on the head. Mm. And that will be the end of them. Mm. You know, they'll I mean, go back to what they always should have been, which was just something that was off out there in the ether. Yeah. Anyway. Quite okay to discriminate against people because of their religion, provided it's, you know, Christians discriminating against non-Christians, which is essentially what happens. So John in the chat room says, where did I find that? And it was an article in The Guardian, which will be in the show notes. So an article titled, Labor Takes Step Towards New Religious Discrimination Laws with Review of Exemptions for Schools. Google that and you'll find it in The Guardian. Joe, you found an article about negative gearing, which is set to basically the cost to the budget of negative gearing is just going to get bigger and bigger as interest rates rise. Mm-hmm. And there was an article in an ABC online edition that talked about this is going to reach $20 billion a year within a decade. The two things, the capital gains tax concessions that property investors get and also, oh, and the other part of this was that most of these benefits go to the top end of town. So 39% of negative gearing benefits go to people earning more than basically 130000 a year. And those people on less than 51500 a year, so basically the bottom 50% of income earners, they'll only be getting 4% of that total cost or benefit, if you like, of negative gearing. So it's a lot of money and it's going to the upper ends of the wage spectrum. Did I just repeat everything you needed to say, Joe, or did you want to add a further element of disgust to it? No, no, just thought it was interesting that effectively negative gearing, what a surprise, it it values the top end of town and and Mm. the average person is going to lose out because of it. And Scott, what would you have to say to those scumbags who negatively gear out there? Okay, I've got a negatively geared property. <laughs> I bought a DHA property and that sort of stuff in South Ripley. So, yeah. yes, you can throw rocks at me if you want to. No, you, yeah. you deal, you work with the laws you're given. Like people would yeah, say, exactly. oh, if you love, now, I, if you you love know, socialism I, or communism, give, it, give all your stuff away. But that's not exactly. the system we're working now, in. So. I've got this, you know, I've got this place up here in Mackay that I own outright and then I just had this extra money and all that sort of stuff. So I started looking around for investments and I did buy some shares and that sort of stuff. But then I also thought to myself, you know, I've got to get a, a crushing mortgage, I think, which is what the better half said. So I've got a crushing mortgage on this place and that sort of stuff down in South Ripley. And uh, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Do I think that we should change the capital gains tax laws? Yes, I do. I do believe that they should go back to the way they were set up, which is you got a, which is where you bought a property and that sort of stuff, and then you paid only, you paid only capital gains tax on the profit that you made after the uh, what was it called the inflation, uh, inflation rate, rate and that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think they should go back to that. 
because that was a very simple thing to do. You just calculate it and moved on. And not halve it. No, exactly. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just, I, I, you know, however, having said that, I've bought under these rules and all that sort of stuff. No doubt the government, if they ever decide to go back to that, is going to say those of you who have bought under those rules can still sell under those rules and all that sort of stuff. So they'll, you know, they'll grandfather it. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm not going to be I'm not going to be bothered by it. But it's just mm. one of those things. I just think to myself, if they want to make it fair and that sort of stuff, they should go back to the way it was calculated, and then that would be a lot fairer. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. I. I can understand where the government was coming from and all that sort of stuff. It was the Howard government that gave us the middle class government. welfare. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It was middle class welfare. There's no doubt about that. And it's mm. just one of those things like, you know, you, you, you can see it all, you know, they, they talk about I think it's 80% of rental properties and that sort of stuff are owned by mum and dad investors, which is fine. However, what they're discovering is that mum and dad as an investor they're not real nice landlords <laughs> and they apparently and, and they're just another competitor at the auction when it yeah. comes to purchasing so exactly you know really it's a fundamental thing of do you think property should you know shelter should it be an investment vehicle should we be encouraging it as an investment vehicle and i'd say <sighs> no like we want it's a very australian way of viewing property it is. Uh, as, as an investment, and it's a very popular barbecue sort of conversation point. But I think if you went to Germany or Austria or places like that, you would not get uh, anything like the same number of people having investment well, properties. In Germany, no. not, in, not Germany, even in Germany, it's, it's very unrealistic. It's mostly people rent for their whole lives. Hmm. You know, it's just one of those things. Their rents don't go up dramatically like ours have, though. Mm. Now, it's, it's not seen as a great I don't investment know. It's, category. But, you know, it doesn't Europe, make any sense, Scott. You know, let's say you buy a house for 500000 and you sell it for a million well, and you've had it for five years and inflation was running at 5%. So it should be the case that, all right, the original 500000 in today's money is now 580000 Therefore, you've made a profit, if you like, of 420000 We'll at least pay tax on that full 420000 But the way it currently works is you then halve that four hundred twenty and pay tax on that. tax on $260,000 of it all and all that sort of M stuff. Meanwhile, if you've been flipping hamburgers or pouring yeah. beers or handing yeah. out coffees and you've earned... That four hundred twenty thousand, you pay tax on the full, on the full amount. So mm. why should capital gains income just get halved? It, it's just an unfair arrangement for starters. It, yeah, it is quite unfair. Mm. It's just one of those things now. Mm. So you know, anyway. yeah. I mean, in Jersey where I lived before I moved over here, you got tax breaks on your primary residence but not on any investment mm. which made far more sense to me yeah because as a first-time buyer i was struggling yep. and so getting the interest taken off my tax was great for me rather than giving it as a break for somebody to invest and earn and well the opposite yeah we are the opposite yeah, these things go on around the world. It's not hard to look at them and say, that's probably a better system. Why don't we just introduce that? 
Of course, you need a set of balls to actually sell it. Vested so. interests? Yes. Well, that, that's the whole point. You, you've mm. got, you know, you, you do have a hell of a lot of people that are already invested in that sort of stuff. Mm. If you grandfather them and that sort of stuff and say, now, look, we're not going to be touching you, they're still not going to believe you because you were the party that introduced that tax and that sort of stuff. Mm. And that is where the problem is. Anyway, it's... Yeah. I've got a theory on grandfathering, Scott, which is yeah. you can gradually <laughs> run down the grandfathering. Yeah, so I agree. So you could say, you know what, this sort of 50% discount that we give you, we're going we're gonna to phase that out over five years. So if mm. you sell your property tomorrow, you can have the full 50%, but next year you only get 40%, next year 30%, next year 20, 10, zero. And you can sort of phase these things out as well. So mm. they don't have to be grandfathered forever. No, I agree. Yeah. It's one of those things now, you know, mm. I don't know if you were trying to make me feel guilty about my investment property. but No, anyway. I, I, no I wasn't. I was just teasing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was you just, just having fun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's uh, But it, it actually proves a point, like, you have to work with the rules that, that, that you are presented with. So there's yeah, exactly. nothing wrong. I, I go back to a mm. high court ruling, which was mm. many, many, many moons ago. And it was said that and the judge in the, in the high court said, he said, if a, there, is no moral, there is no moral compulsion to pay tax, only a legal compulsion to pay tax. Mm. If a man can structure his affairs in a way within the law to minimise the amount of income tax that he must pay, then he is quite entitled to do so. Mm. So that is what's what, one of the reasons that I have bought this place and that sort of stuff because I'm just acting within the law. Mm. Yeah, no criticism, Scott. I was just because I knew your circumstances. And I... Yeah, <laughs> which is fine. You know, yeah. it's if if the laws change and that sort of stuff, I will I will compile I will comply with the law. Yeah. Hey, but last you're week. Quite right. Last week we had a brief guess at average wage and median wage, mm -hmm. and uh, I did take the time, dear listener, to have a quick look, and the average wage, well, this is for 2019-2020, was 63882 but the median wage was 48381 So I think when we talk about wages, the, the, the key figure is the median wage, lining everybody up from the poorest to the richest and stopping halfway along the line, okay, what's that person earning? And that is the 48381 Is that the median or is that the modal? That's the median. Okay. Modal is where you have it's the most a whole common. bunch of people on 50000 yep. not so many on twenty, not so many on 80. The modal is 50, but, yeah, that's not yeah, okay. going to work in this situation. So because averages can be misleading... And in this article from the ABC, just to sort of make the point, why is average taxable income higher than the median? And it's because some exceptionally well-paid people drag the average up. So imagine you had 10 people in a room, nine of them earn $10,000 a year, and one of them earns 500000 a year. The average would be 59000 but median would be 10,000, which would be much more representative of the true situation. So that's, uh, that's the wages in Australia from two years ago. 
And interestingly, in the same article, I think it was the same article, might have had a link to it, talked about superannuation, just what uh, most people have with super. And if you're in the, uh, well, who's the average listener here in the chat room? How old are you out there? Let's go for 50s. <laughs> I was going to say 40s and 50s. Yeah, 45-year-old male average super is about 120,000. Female, really? about 80,000. I oh, know, female is about, yeah, about 80,000. 55 to 59 age group, average super balance. Male would be about 160. Female, about 115, 110. So there's quite a disparity between male and female in these figures. Actually, I Our think I've got Facebook this. Facebook audience. Yeah. Are yeah. 67% male, 32.8% female, with most of our listeners between 25 and 54. Oh, there we go. The 45 yeah. to 54 is slightly higher than the 35 to 44, which is yeah. slightly higher than the 25 to 34. Well, if you're in the 35 to 39 age bracket, then males typically have about 65,000, females about 50. And it tends to actually, I wonder if I can bring this up. I think I can. I think I've got this presentation on here. So I won't bother at this point. It, it's funny enough, men have a lot more super than women until you actually get to the retirement age of 65. And then the women catch up. And I think that's because probably lots of people are able to structure their affairs and downsize the family home and put money into the female name or something like that. So 65 to 69 year age group, typical male, 180, female, 175. There you go. So now you know the median wage and the typical superannuation Figure out how you compare to the average Joe or the average Scott. But don't compare yourself to the average Alan Joy, CEO of Qantas. Like, that guy's done a shocking job. He's completely trashed the good name of Qantas. I'm sure Shay would disagree with you there. I think Shay would be very much in agreement. And uh, so his take-home pay last year was $2.27 million up from 1.98 the previous year. So just his take-home pay, 2.27. But shareholders voted overwhelmingly to give him a performance bonus worth about $4 million. And oh, we've just had somebody crazy in the chat room, some crazy bot, so we'll get rid of that. So, yeah, he's got a bonus of $4 million and they also voted no, to give him long-term rights amounting to another $5 million deferred for three years. So they've just rewarded this guy with buckets of money. And when anybody looks at the performance of Qantas, they go, they go well, how can anybody be given special bonuses for what's been happening? But that's the way the world works. Scott, any explanation? You there, Scott? Scott's disappeared? He's disappeared, has he? Yeah, looks like it. All right. See if Scott comes back. We've talked in the past about rules-based international order. Oh, by the no, way, no, if you... it's really oh, Scott quite is back. infuriating when you... No, I don't have any explanation for it. Oh, shit. Hello? Yeah, you're no, here no, with us, Scott. Good. We can hear you. Fuck. No, Scott, we can hear you now. What is wrong with that? Oh, maybe he's listening to us. No, I am now. here. I... Oh, we can hear you, Scott. Go ahead. Unless he's playing catch-up. 
Oh, Scott, what do you? You might be listening to the actual broadcast rather than listening to us. Luckily, I've got Joe, the tech guy here, <laughs> as well as dealing with no, internet trolls. He's troll. dropped off completely now. <laughs> as well as dealing with internet trolls, isn't he? I'm going to try and reconnect to Scott as well. So, if you're in the chat room, when we sort of wipe the chats, we'll bring them back up. So, can you put the chats back up, Joe? I think. It would be okay now. Yeah, then yeah. if you start it takes chatting about again, thirty seconds to time out. Yeah, it'll start appearing, and and that person who was selling sex services or whatever they were doing, Hello. hopefully, it disappeared. Scott's back. He's, can you hear me, Scott? No, he was talking, but he can't hear me. I'll keep yep, rabbiting no. on. Oh, you can hear me, Scott. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, Scott, tell us how you feel about Alan Joyce and his massive bonus. Well, you know, I just think it's bloody ridiculous that they actually voted for that because. You know, I'm a long-term quarters customer and that sort of stuff. I fly back to Brisbane once a month on them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I haven't experienced the extreme stuff-ups and that sort of stuff that that they ended up giving us all 50 bucks for. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not a real pleasant experience when you're herded on there and that sort of thing with them. Mm. They're not the premier airline they weren't once were, and it's really quite infuriating when you get to, what's the word I'm looking for? When you just get stuffed up and that sort of stuff. Like you know, there's all sorts of stories about bags being sent overseas, which should have just made it down to Brisbane and all that sort of thing. Mm. And you know that is a real stuff up. And what you've actually found is it's because of the uh, staff that were sacked illegally in the pandemic mm. and they were replaced with contractors because they thought that they would save themselves some dosh and it's turned out to be an actual cost for them. Yes. Of course, Alan Joyce was also blaming customers because they were not match fit, having been in COVID lockdown and not travelling. We lost our, our, our match fitness and our capacity to drag our own, ba- our own bags and put them on a carousel properly. So, yeah. Anyway, that's just, it's just typical that people don't, are not held accountable for bad decisions. And, you know, often it's the case bad decisions are made, executive walks away with big bonuses, and, and it's only afterwards that people look at it and go, oh, look, actually that guy stuffed it up. Wish we didn't give him those bonuses. But... In this case, we can actually look at it and go, he's trashed the brand and uh, and they're still awarding him with these bonuses. The system is, is not Yeah, working. but it also you've got to wonder what the contract says because mm. as long as he meets certain targets, he gets his bonus. Yes. And, and his actions will be aimed at meeting those targets. So if the targets are poorly balanced, he'll have concentrated on that to the detriment of everything else. Yes. And... The board, no doubt, would have taken advice from remuneration experts onto, as to how to structure CEO remuneration. And, gee, you know, who are you going to hire as your remuneration expert? Somebody likely to suggest large pay packets or somebody likely to suggest small pay packets, given that you sitting on the board are also relying on the same remuneration experts. There's an inbuilt incentive for these people to employ experts who are going to suggest higher rates than smaller rates. So, mm. 
I was listening to a discussion about expert witnesses in courts mm. and they were saying they're supposed to tell the truth and they're supposed to be independent of whoever hires them. Mm. But if you're going out and you're looking at 100 expert witnesses, you're going to hire the one that most believes your story. Yes. And you're not going to hire the one that least believes your story, are you? Correct. And there are certain expert witnesses, say, in EI cases or whatever, who are known to be a good but, for plaintiffs but, but or good for defendants. Even if they were absolutely, you know, completely scrupulous, they, they absolutely only said what they believed, truly believed, mm. you would still hire the expert witness that aligned most with your case. Of course, yeah. Yep. So Everybody it's, knows it's, that. It, yep. It's not necessarily the, these experts are nefarious. Yes. It's just when you're hunting around, you find the one that will give you the outcome you want. Indeed, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that was Alan Joyce. Right. Scott. Yeah. Uh, the USA is very keen that on international rules-based order. And a thing came through about uh, there was a vote in the UN about whether to continue with the blockade of Cuba. So there's currently very severe sanctions on trading with Cuba. So, for example, any ship that docks in Cuba, I think, is not allowed to then enter the United States for at least six months or something like that. So it's really expensive to ship things to Cuba because normally it would pick stuff up from the United States and bring it back. So, yeah, a whole bunch of other sort of sanctions that are imposed on Cuba and United Nations. And the vote was 185 to 2 against the blockade. And the there were two abstentions. That's the word you use? Yeah, ab, abstentions. So those who voted in favour of continuing the blockade were the, the USA and Israel, the two that abstained were, let me just see here if I can find them, was Ukraine and Brazil under the Bolsonaro government, which has recently just left. So the rest of the world voted against the sanctions. It's not a good look. I think, Scott, Israel's coming under increasing criticism in the world, I think. People are referring to it as an apartheid state and things like this are not good. Rightly it's, so. Mm. Because, you know, Israel has behaved very much like an apartheid state. Mm. You know, it is bloody criminal the way they treat the Palestinians. Mm. Now, that doesn't, you know, please don't take me for being anti-Semitic here or anything like that. You can be critical of the Jewish state and not be mm. critical of Jews. I do not for one minute believe that if the PLO were as well-armed as the IDF, that they would not stop pushing until they'd pushed the Jews into the Mediterranean. Mm. You know, mm. it's one well, of those things. But Israel has got to accept that they've got the upper hand militarily and that type of thing, and with comes with that a level of responsibility. They have to be prepared to shoulder their arms a little more and take their fingers off the trigger. And they have to show real restraint when they're dealing with the Palestinian people. Mm. 
because the Palestinian people have got every right to be very pissed off for the way they've been treated. Mm-hmm. Israel's yeah. definitely turning into a bit of a pariah state, I think. Absolutely. Many people who, who were sympathetic towards it maybe 20 years ago, but increasingly less so. So these exactly. sorts of things, like this vote against poor old Cuba, the mm. US and Israel. Right, no, uh, it's really quite ridiculous that, you know, the, the Yanks such a threat have to, to accept, the world. Yeah, the Yanks have to accept that Cuba's big patriarchal friend is dead. The Soviet Union is gone, so Cuba is no longer any sort of threat to the United States. So if they want to call themselves a Marxist economy, let them call themselves Marxist. Mm. It's no problem Mm. because they can't do anything to the US or anything like that. I just think the Yanks just look very churlish when they continue this blockade of Cuba. Mm. Indeed. So... Speaking of sort of sanctions, interesting thing has occurred. So there's a group of seven rich nations plus Australia. Well, I guess that's the G7. <laughs> so the G7 plus Australia, they've agreed to set a fixed price when they finalise a price cap on Russian oil later this month. So this is scheduled to take effect on the 5th of December where these countries, G7 plus Australia, have decided that there's going to be a price cap on Russian oil. And the idea is to to ensure that the EU and the US sanctions aimed at limiting Moscow's ability to fund its invasion of Ukraine do not throttle the global oil market. So the idea is, well, we need the oil, but we don't want Putin to get rich from the oil. So we're just going to impose a a price cap. And... And that's going to start on 5th of December for crude and 5th of February on oil products. Guess what Russia said? Russia said, well, we just won't supply if you're going to set a price cap. You just can't unilaterally tell us that there's a price cap on our oil. We'll set the price that we want to sell it at, thank you very much. And if you're not going to pay it, then we're not going to supply it. I mean, it's quite extraordinary for... Australia and the G7 countries to say, well, we're just going to tell Russia what it can charge for oil. I mean, we still want their oil and we're going to charge, but we can tell them what they can charge for it. For goodness sake. Yeah, that is a little bit ridiculous. I mean, the world's got to recognise and the US has got to recognise that Russia, India, China are too big and what worked against Venezuela and Cuba will not work with these guys. So John says the US has still got sanctions on Venezuela but are now talking about buying their oil. That's right. They're suddenly cozying up to Venezuela and wanting to be friendly again. It's pathetic. So I found this article called uh, Global Finance versus Global Energy, Who Will Come Out on Top? And this was by Dr Karen Canessi, who's an energy analyst, author of 14 books on energy-related and other topics, She was Austria's foreign minister for two years. She served 10 years in the foreign service and she's fluent in classical Arabic, amongst other languages. Currently living in Lebanon. Sounds like a very interesting lady. And so she says there's more to the current struggle between the oil-consuming West and the oil-producing nations than meets the eye and it runs far deeper than the war in the Ukraine. So she says... 
In this war between global finance and global energy, one fact remains clear. You can print money, but you can't print oil. So the European Union agreed to impose a Russian oil price cap. Uh, This is back in the 6th of October. 23 oil ministers from the OPEC Plus group spoke out immediately in favour of a sharp cut in their production quota. So there's OPEC and there's 10 non-OPEC energy producers and sort of collectively now called OPEC Plus. And they're now coordinating their production of oil. And they've been doing it since 2016. And originally people thought, well, good luck. You guys won't be able to organise yourselves and you're not going to be able to pressure the world like you think you can. But today, former rivals such as Saudi Arabia and Russia are managing to converge their interests into powerful cards. So it used to be normal practice for Riyadh to take into account and execute Washington's interests. But a simple phone call was enough, but that's changed. And talks about the proxy war in Ukraine and she said that you've got the US and European allies who basically represent the finance sector and they're engaged in a war against the world's energy sector. And while it's easy to print paper currency, and the US was doing a lot of it, as well as other countries with quantitative easing, oil cannot be printed. It's a fundamental problem for the West. And it's going to win out at the end of the day, is what she is saying. So she wrote a book in 2005 called The Energy Poker. And and she dealt with the issue of currency, and whether oil will be traded in US dollars in the long term. And she says, at the time, my interlocutors from the Arab OPEC countries unanimously said that the US dollar would not be changed. Yet 17 years later, that view has devolved starkly. So, dear listener, this is the key. When the world collapses financially... One of the reasons it's all going to relate to currency and essentially after the gold standard was abandoned, the US basically said to Saudi Arabia, okay, sell your oil, but you have to trade in US dollars. Provided you do that, we will support you. But you have to buy, people have to buy and sell oil in US dollars and for the US, that was a big advantage because basically it then meant that, okay, a US dollar was no longer equivalent to a certain you know, number of ounces of gold, but it was equivalent to a certain number of barrels of oil. And so that agreement with Saudi cemented the US dollar as the world's de facto reserve currency. If you have a US dollar, you can get a suitable amount of oil gave the US dollar value. But now, because of what's happening and is accelerated by the Ukraine war, these countries of Russia, India, Iran, China are now dealing in oil and deciding not to use the US dollar. And that's a huge change. And it's a massive, it's a massively important change in the world affairs and I think I'm going to talk about it next week a little bit. So so just finishing off this article here, Washington no longer maintains its ability to exert absolute leverage on OPEC, which is now repositioning itself into the OPEC plus. She's basically predicting 
the oil suppliers will win out. And uh, just in relation to China, so until the early 1990s, China satisfied its domestic oil consumption with domestic oil consumption, about three to four million barrels per day. But 15 years and a rapidly growing economy later, and China is now the world's number one oil importer. And guess what? When it imports oil from these guys, it doesn't want to be paying in US dollars. And they're accepting Chinese money now. So, so let's say in here, yeah, I think that's the main point of the article. So she thinks it's a battle between oil producers and finance money printers and the oil producers are going to win out. And I've been reading lots of stuff over the last 12 months about this whole thing with the currency. And I think uh, when it all turns to shit for America, it's the US dollar and it's collapse as the reserve currency that's going to be the thing that really tips them over the edge. There's a prediction. Might take a year, might take 10, might take 20, but we'll see. So you think they're going to end up in another civil war? A civil war in America? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, then that'll precipitate all sorts of issues in the country when suddenly overnight the economy collapses. So, yes, civil war. I mean, Californians and somebody in the south, I mean, they are so different. They may as well be different countries. So Exactly. Yeah. It will get pretty, pretty ugly. And, well, you know, they, they're going to have to be very careful because a lot of the nukes are based in the southern states and all that sort of stuff, so you don't want the nukes falling into the hands of the Republic of Gilead, which is yeah. what it will end up being. Yeah. You don't want the nukes in, the, in a country like that. Mm. You know, now it's they're going to have to very quietly move the nukes out of those north of the Mason-Dixie line mm. so that once the country splits in two, the nukes aren't going to be in south of the Mason-Dixie line. I hadn't thought of the nuclear issue when it came to the American Civil War, Scott. It's mm. another frightening element to it. It is yeah. very frightening because you've got these lunatics who wouldn't actually mind nuking a couple of places. Mm. Well, and they would I mean, justify they'd justify themselves and all that sort of stuff by saying, "Oh, we were just sending them to God." Mm. Yeah, you know. Well, there are godless heathens in California. Yeah, so exactly. They, so they've got to mm. nuke them. Mm. Yeah, John says, "I don't think it's civil war. Maybe some states seceding from the union." Is that the same as civil war? Well, what happens, John, is some states want to secede and the other guys say, not so fast. Yeah. We're not going to let you. I mean, that's what happened in the first civil war. So they said, oh, we'd like to go, thanks. Yeah, not so fast. I mean, it's just one of those things. Like I remember my brother years and years ago he was talking about the civil war and he said, you know, a lot of it wasn't, he said it wasn't down to just slavery. It was down to over the right to secede. Yes. Which is why it all blew up. Mm, indeed. Yeah. Anyway, just generally on Europe then, I mean, they're in trouble because without cheap Russian gas, they just can't compete. So... Yeah, and that's really very annoying actually that Germany is continuing down the road of closing their nuclear power plants. Mm. Now, one would have thought that considering you've got a shutdown of cheap Russian gas coming into the country, 
mm. that you've got a very good reason to keep your nuclear power plants turning over. Mm. My, my yeah, view on know, all this, Scott, is that in Australia we don't need nuclear power. Stations, no, we we but, don't but need. I we can don't well need. see that Europe does. Exactly. It, it's just one of those things. Like Europe, Europe's further down the re renewable road than we are. But they've got a long-established nuclear industry which has been completely blemish-free. Mm. I mean, I bet you can name three nuclear power plants or maybe the latest two in, in Ukraine, but you can name Chernobyl, Fukushima and Three Mile Island because they're the only three that have had disaster, uh, have had problems. Mm. But you can't name any of the nuclear plants in France. Or any Capital Hog. Sorry? Capital Hog. Okay, used to live opposite it. Right, fair enough. But, you know, I bet you can't name any of them that are in Sweden or anywhere mm. or anywhere like that. Mm. And then Hinkley Point in England? Well, fair and enough. And Sellafield. Sellafield had a nuclear accident. Oh, did it? Yeah. Mm. Anyway, it's I, just... I, I get the point that you're making, Scott. Yes, yeah, exactly. Is, None of, um, not, this, not, most of us can't name them because they're yeah. generally safe. But... Yes. They're further down the down the road than we are. Like I think it is absolutely ridiculous that Dutton is still talking up nuclear power for Australia. So nuclear that was built in the sixties and seventies is a sunk cost, mm. exactly. uh, and and the cost of keeping it running is very very different to the cost of building from you. Exactly, and if you were going to start up right, if you're going to start up now, you've got a huge amount of money that you've got to spend on it. It just makes no sense. Like you know, it's. You know, Paul, bless his heart, he had a he had a very much a nuclear. He loved nuclear power, mm -hmm. but you know he would not ever get it through his head that renewables have come down in price so much that they now make perfect sense that we should go with renewables rather than nuclear power. Well, especially yes. with pumped hydro. Exactly. Paul would argue that there is not enough storage to make renewables reliable enough is what he would say. Yeah, I know, but we've already got that, you know, they've got this thing that's going up west of Mackay and that sort of stuff up here that's going to generate more than two-thirds of the electricity for Queensland. Really? Yeah. Solar farm? No, this is the... Uh, oh, this is the dam. Yeah, the, the dam. Yeah, the pumped hydro. So right. the, the idea is that you have a surplus of hmm. solar during the day. And um, that will pump it, the between water back solar. Yeah, you pump the water up the hill and then overnight and in cloudy conditions. And if your solar plants and your wind plants are diverse enough, so covering a large enough area of country, the weather is different in different places. And so you've got a surplus of uh, generating capacity and you so store the surplus that you do have to tide you over in the periods where you're not generating. Mm. And they've done the sums looking at the weather patterns, and it's all very feasible. So, mm -hmm. yeah, anyway, that, that's Europe. They are in trouble. They're well, in real they're trouble in over there. They're in and real trouble because, you know, you've got this, you've got the current situation that the French government and that sort of stuff are all wearing turtlenecks underneath their jackets mm. just to say, look, you can be warm if you wear this. Mm. You know, they're just trying to get everyone ready for a cold winter. Mm. Yeah, we are once again the lucky country now. Oh, very um, much so. Mm, quick advertisement break. So just a reminder that there is a newsletter. So as I scroll through different articles during the week, I highlight them and 
I've got a system set up where if you subscribe to the newsletter, you will, I think three times a week, get a look at the articles that I have highlighted that might be used in the podcast. So go on to ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and find the newsletter link and sign up. There are currently 13 subscribers who get that and it doesn't cost you anything. It saves you from having to subscribe to 60 or 70 odd blogs and publications that I do and sort out the wheat from the chaff. So I do it so you don't have to and give it a go. Why not? I better subscribe to that. Yes, Scott, do that. <laughs> and also patrons. So I haven't done it for a long time, but I better do it because I just got a new I got a new patron. Danny Borland signed up. First patron in five months. And so good on you, Danny. And thank you to Danny. Obrad Puskarika, Anti Usentiment, Tristian Hennessy, Mark Lavelle, Cy Gladman, Tom Stubbings. Ricky O, Greg Peach, Shannon Legg, Dan Toovey, Matt Dwyer, Sue Cripp, James Leanne, Ranwin Wayne, David Hanby, Virgil, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Zambuck, David Copley, Graham Hannigan, yet another Pinker fan, John in Dire Straits, who is in the chat room, Donnie Darko, Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waper, Alexandra Allen, Matthew Craig S, Glenn Bell, Professor Dr. Dentist, Adam Priest, Murray Waper, Andy Dowling, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Dominic DeMassey, Maddock Mann, Bronwyn, who was also in the chat room, Kane, Jimmy Spud, good to see life has turned well for you, Jimmy, and your marriage looks great in your guitar and all the rest of it. Tony Wall, Steve Shinners, Alison, who's also in the chat room, Ayame, Wayno, Craig Gladsby and Janelle Louise and some people who don't like Patreon but who provide via PayPal would be Mr T and Paul Evans and Anne Reid and Darren Giddens and David S from Cairns and Noel Hamilton. So thank you to all those people. Yeah, if you get value out of this podcast and want to chip in a dollar or two, head to the website ironfistvelvetglove.com.au you'll see a donation link. All donations, much appreciated. So there we go. Don't do it all the time, but thank you very much to the patrons. All right, to chips. This kind of ties in with the sanctions sort of theme that we've got going in the background of this podcast. So the US and the Netherlands are expected to hold a new round of talks this month on restricting China's access to advanced chip technologies. So Washington is trying to ramp up pressure on the Netherlands to block this company called ASML from supplying China with the sort of equipment that it wants to make top-end chips. So they already don't give China the very, very best stuff they've got, but America is pressuring them to, to also stop supplying the next level down stuff. So pressure from America on the Netherlands to stop their uh, company from selling chip manufacturing equipment to China. Scott, here's a prediction. China will figure it out for themselves and they will ramp up their capacity to make chips and will eventually ruin Taiwanese chip-making businesses to the point where the Taiwanese will then say, well, you've totally screwed us with our major industry. If we join you, will that be okay? And can we start running our business again? Like if I was China and I look at 
Taiwan. Taiwan makes 65% of the world's semiconductors and almost 90% of the advanced chips. And why would you invade if you could just simply crush their economy by making chips and undercutting them? How's that sound as a, as a theory, Scott? Yeah, okay. I can understand where you're coming from, but I, I don't think you and I are ever going to agree on China because I honestly believe that China has got to accept that they won that civil war and that the former island of Formosa has evolved and grown into a, a sovereign nation called Taiwan or the Republic of China. Now, the People's Republic of China, that is the mainland, that is a very different country to the Republic of China, which is Taiwan. And I honestly believe that China's got to accept the fact that they have won that civil war and that the Republic of China is an independent sovereign country Mm. and that the People's Republic of China is a very different entity. Now... He has made a hell of a lot of the 100 years of humiliation or 200 years of humiliation, whatever it was. And I can understand where he's coming from. But Taiwan is not in the same category as the rest of the humiliation that they have suffered mm-hmm. because Taiwan has become independent ever since 1948 or 49, whenever the revolution was. Mm-hmm. So I can understand their humiliation between the British and the French and the Americans and all that sort of stuff, but they've got to accept that Taiwan has evolved and is now an independent sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. Now, I honestly believe that where they should start with all that is that they can sit down and talk to them because they speak the same language and they should actually say to them that, you know, We're prepared to accept you as an independent sovereign nation, provided that you give up your requirement, your request for the South China Sea, because both the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China both argue over that. They both they they both lay claim to that. Yes. So if Taiwan said to the PRC, "Yeah, the South China Sea is yours, provided you give us." you recognise us as an independent sovereign nation, that would be a step forward. Yeah, China's never going to do that. I know they're never going to do that. Mm. They're never going to do that because <laughs> Xi has got this fixation on reunifying Taiwan it's not, as part of the It's not just Xi. Like, it's not just Xi. Like, okay. But, you know, you could, you've got to look at it. This sort of stuff. The history of it is being written and all that type of thing. Mm. You know, the Kuomintang ran across the four, the Taiwan Straits to Formosa. Mm. And Formosa was still part of the, you know, the, that was back when they had the Kuomintang and that sort of stuff. They were still there and they well, set up their own parliament and all that sort uh, of stuff. Arguably, arguably they invaded the existing population and, and overrun them. And Yeah, okay, fair enough. You know, the but... existing natives of Formosa weren't real happy mm. either, were they? Probably not. I don't know mm. that, but it's one of those things. The whole point is... I think actually, I think there was a heavy Japanese culture by that stage 
Formosa mm. because they'd been because occupied, Japan occupied for so yeah, long Japan by occupied Japan. occupied Formosa before the Second World War. Yeah, and that when yeah, the, exactly when the when the losing Chinese army, you know, decamped there, they were quite critical and scathing of the local population who they saw as sort of very Japanese. So anyway, we digress. I just like the theory though, Scott, that if I was G, I would just work on economically crushing their economy to the point where they would say, mm. can we please that join your economy me, because now the because we're, we're crushed. Hated the Japanese and the Japanese have always but, hated the Chinese. But, but, but yeah. I mean, in terms of cost, it would be the way to do it from China's point of view. They're going to have to become much more self-sufficient with chip making. They're going to have to figure it out and produce their own chips because America's just going to keep interfering so yeah, but you, to you, to accept that to accept that you'd have to no, China will never do that. Never do what, Scott? Never do what? Are you there? Have we lost him again, Joe? Is he looking the way? Just as I'm getting on top on this argument, he pulls the old technical difficulty trick. Just as I'm really starting to. Screw him down there. Hello. Suddenly. Yeah, and back. Scott, what do you mean China will never do that? If China... China okay, I didn't hear you then. What did you say? My argument was that China could yeah. figure out how to make these chips and semiconductors and if it put its mind to it, could produce them, subsidise them and basically cripple the Taiwanese economy. Why wouldn't they do that? It'd be much cheaper than trying to invade militarily. As a tactic, it sort of sounds pretty good, I reckon. No? Have you disappeared? I'll move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, Scott's disappeared. Yell out, Scott, if you can reappear. I'm going to take that as full agreement with my argument. All right. Robin was saying that the uh, lunar eclipse is looking spectacular. Yes, there is a, a lunar eclipse. Duck outside if you have a chance. Are you back, Scott? I heard him there in the background. Yeah, yeah, he was there for a second. Yeah. All right. Put Mm. another coin in the metre, Scott. Yeah. It's not much of an advertisement for regional Queensland. He's got to to use some of that rent money he's collecting from those tenants and get himself some some proper internet. Fibre to the premises. Yeah. Just a box of all brains, isn't it? Hmm. If you're predicting the end of the US empire, here are some things that might suggest that that is increasingly likely in the near, not so distant future. Just some signs. And it would. I didn't hear what you just said. All right. You're back, Scott. Are you definitely there? Scott, I'm not going to repeat myself unless you. <laughs> and he's gone. <laughs> no, there you go. If you're looking for signs that America has, is in trouble, here they are. Number one. Saudi Arabia rejected Biden's demand to increase oil production. Instead, they're working with Russia to cut production. And, in fact, Saudi Arabia invited Xi Jinping for a visit. Number two. Yeah, maybe they need to get Bandar Bush over there to renegotiate. Yes. Number two, Lula won in Brazil, and he's talking up a new currency to replace the US dollar. So, actually, I've got a clip on, have I got a clip on Lula? No, I don't have a clip on you. I've got it in writing somewhere. I'll come to that one. Actually, I'll find it right here. 
Lula said, so he's insisted that when his Workers' Party lost power in 2016, he said that the BRICS, so that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, the major shortcoming was South its failure Africa. in South Africa, thank you. The major shortcoming was its failure to launch a new currency to rival the dollar. And in an interview from prison, Lula recalled the quote, when I discussed a new currency, Obama called me telling me, are you trying to create a new currency, a new euro? And I said, no, I'm just trying to get rid of the US dollar. So that tells you how Lula feels about the US dollar. So he's the new Brazilian president. Other things that have happened that don't bode well for America is that Argentina, Saudi Arabia and Iran are exploring membership of BRICS and the China-led Shanghai Cooperation Organisation has added Iran as a new member and Qatar has rejected a price cap on Russian energy and Singapore clearly says it's not going to choose between China and the USA. India increases purchases of Russian energy products and pays for some of it using Chinese yuan. And a German leader visited China. And yeah, so there's a whole bunch of things going on that don't bode well for American hegemony. Scott, are you back? No. You'll hear the ping when he joins. Okay. Right. Alison can't see the eclipse because she's got clouds. Same with John. How does the world view Russia and China? So this was a report from the Bennett Institute at the University of Cambridge. And in this report, they examined how worldwide attitudes towards China, Russia and the United States are shifting. So they looked at data from 30 global survey projects that collectively span 137 countries. And they've analysed this. So it covers not only high-income democracies, but also a comprehensive coverage of emerging economies of the global south. And they say there is a new cleavage. The strongest predictors of how societies align, respective to China or the United States, are their fundamental values and institutions. So if you're looking at the 1.2 billion people who inhabit the world's liberal democracies let's just call it the West, three quarters have a negative view of China and 87% a negative view of Russia. But if you look at the 6.3 billion people who live in the rest of the world, the picture is reversed. In these societies, 70% feel positively towards China and 66% positively towards Russia. So we're in a bubble here when we're looking at this and we have to recognise that 6.3 billion people don't think the same as us. That's a lot of people. I, China, I know people who are in both directions on China. Mm-hmm. But my Russian friends are definitely keen to have, es- or happy to have escaped. Mm. I think this- Putin's, Putin's Russia is not a place that... Yeah. Most yeah. of us would want to live. But this is the view of 6.3 billion people who don't live in Russia as to what they think of Russia. So, you know... That just says they, that they're... they're re- yeah, a favourable view of the country. Press Corps is doing very well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you might look at it and go, I love what they're doing, just glad I don't live there, for example. That could be, well, the attitude. So, so let me see here... 
So the boost in approval across the global south for China comes at a cost in the developed nations. So, and we've talked about this before, the change in attitude towards China. So five years ago, 42% of Western citizens held a positive view of China. And today that figure is just 23%. And what have they done in five years? Sold some more dumplings. Put some soil on some some tidal flats in the South China Sea and started whacking defensive structures on there. Maybe. I'd have done it, yeah. So here we go. However, the real terrain of Russia's international influence lies outside the West. 75% of respondents in South Asia, 68% in Francophone Africa, 62% in Southeast Asia, continue to view the country, that is Russia, positively in spite of everything that's going on. What amazing. There you go. Ah. I wonder how many of those received arms and support during their liberation struggles from Russia. Yeah. Or from, sorry, from the Soviet Union. Yeah. Sorry, say that again, Joe. So the Francophone countries had Mm. liberation struggles in the 60s and 70s. Yep. And you've got to wonder how many of them, the people who are in power, are... Beholden were schooled in Russian universities. Was schooled, but you know, hmm. effectively, their freedom struggles were paid for by the Soviets. And whether that's a legacy of it, perhaps they just hate the Western colonizers. So I don't know that Russia helped that much in a lot of these countries. My understanding was they hmm. funded a lot of them and hmm. they educated a lot of the freedom fighters in Soviet hmm. um, universities. Schooled sure. them in, yeah, it could be in in Marxism and mm. in counter revolutionary techniques. Mm. Could be. Anyway, it just goes to show not everybody thinks the same as the West. No. So there's a Singaporean diplomat, Bill Ahari Kozikan. So he is a Singaporean retired academic, diplomat, and civil servant who served as Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations. For three years. So he's from Singapore and I've got a clip where he has something to say and I will play this one. So let me just find this one. Singaporean diplomat coming up. Let's go with this one. About there, Singapore's Prime Minister has warned the US against framing the competition in the Asia Pacific as a democracy's versus autocracies contest. Sort of what's your view and, and how does Singapore view this divide going forward? Well, my view is that it is a rather silly and simplistic way of framing the competition in the Indo-Pacific or anywhere else, right? There are many types of democracies and not all autocracies alike, you know? you Maybe you can frame it as some mainly Western type democracies versus some autocracies to it, Russia and China. But to put it in broad categories like democracy and autocracy is to me just silly. This is not how countries calculate their interests. Give you one, give you a couple of examples, right? Vietnam is an autocracy. It's a Leninist type system like China. But Vietnam has deep concerns about China and, and has had so for centuries. I don't think India joined the court because it was 
a collection of democracies. It has specific reasons for joining the Quad, uh, which have to do with specific strategic concerns, not these broad ideological ideas. These are much more justifications. You know, I, I understand that certain countries, particularly Europe and North America, the US in North America and many European countries are kind of obsessed with this. But I think you have to understand that it really is a way of, it limits your support rather than expands it. Because not everybody will find every aspect of Western democracies attractive. In fact, I don't, myself, I would not consider it an attractive model for Singapore. Uh, and not everybody will find every aspect of autocracies, of every autocracy, uh, automatically abhorrent either. So it's a silly way of framing the thing. Simplistic, overly simplistic. It limits your support rather than expands it. So why do it? Except to make yourself feel better. There we go. Just how other people in the world think about these things. Worth considering, I think. Yeah, I mean, Singapore's a special case, isn't it? Well, what is the situation in Singapore? I don't know how it operates. Nominally a democracy, but one party's been in power for 60 years. Mm -hmm. It's very, very autocratic, I think, and it's very free market. Mm -hmm. So I think to them the idea of a social democracy is probably anathema and and uh, especially to those who've succeeded in singapore mm -hmm. who are doing well under the system i think that the idea that they should pay for the poorer might not be as welcome mm. but singapore singapore has done amazingly well i mean mm. under Brit under british rule i know someone who grew up in the villages the rural villages and it was severe poverty and it's now a very, very modern state. Yes. Yeah, it needs, it's very first world in terms of its infrastructure and, and public services. Mm. This emphasis on autocracies and authoritarian regimes comes about because, for example, it used to be, well, they're goddamn communists, mm -hmm. but they can't say that anymore, so they've got to find something else. That's the whole point. So, so, yeah, that's another way of how the world can be viewed. And uh, let me just find this thing if it hopefully it comes up. World population, Joe, is an interesting one. So let me just bring up another one on the screen for those. It's here. Share screen somewhere. And I will share that screen there. And this, hopefully, there's a site called dominusinfo.world/worldpopulation. Running count of how many people there are in the world, right? Seven billion. I'm guessing this is an estimation. Yes. Well, clearly, statistically, figuring it out, it's ticking over births and it's ticking over deaths and it's coming up with a total. And seven billion nine hundred eighty-six thousand five hundred sixty thousand nine hundred and twenty people in the world right at this moment, of course, Odomina. So I think it's going to be in about a week's time you'll probably see on the news the world's population has probably reached 8 billion. So Of which yeah. 3 billion are in India and China. Yeah. Well, that is the next thing. It is China 1.4 and uh, 1.45 and India 0.41. Next on the list... Dear listener, so we've got China, India, 
as number one and number two in terms of population. Have a think about it. What country would you have at for the most populous country on the planet? And the answer is the United States of America, 35,000. Indonesia, 280,000. Pakistan, 231. Brazil, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Russia, the top 10. So John says growth is slowing, apparently soon to be going into the negative. Depends on the country. In fact, they predicted for... 2050, that the population will be 9.7 billion in 2050. So I think about 2100 will start to level out. Anyway, that's possible. While we're talking about all countries, I mentioned Brazil. Oh, the other thing, of course, Lula won in Brazil, and it seems like Bolsonaro is accepting the decision, unlike Trump. Lots of his supporters, though, are not happy. So there's been rallies where they're claiming not a fair election. And Joe, you see videos of these rallies. There's an awful lot of Nazi salutes, Zikhiles mm-hmm. going on. Just hundreds of people, thousands, with the Nazi salute. What's going on in the world? Yeah, well, there was a reason they chose to escape to South America, isn't there? Yeah, they did, didn't they? The Vatican helped them. Mm-hmm. That's where they ended up. A lot Not of only the Vatican, I was watching, who was the guy who committed the atrocities in Lyon and finally faced court in France? I can't remember the names. Died in the 90s. Was prosecuted right. in the late 80s, early 90s. Was this the guy with the sort of banality of evil type thing? When he was no, 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 no. He, no, no, he was a guy. he was Gestapo or SS, right. I can't remember which. But he had worked for the CIA in Germany after the war, hunting down Soviet communist spies and wasn't much help, but they wouldn't hand him over to the French because they were worried that he would spill the beans on the fact that the CIA had been employing him. So the the Americans basically, although they knew there was a a warrant out for his arrest, helped him to to escape. Well, they thought... Oh, they got him down you know to what? Italy or somewhere, southern Europe anyway, where he right. caught a boat across to South America. Right. A lot of them ended up in Paraguay, I think, at the time. Yeah, I think or it was Uruguay. Paraguay. Paraguay, Uruguay, yeah. <sighs> Just back to Ukraine, going all over the show. There was an article of Caitlin Johnston citing the Irish Times basically saying that within Ukraine, those who are close to the fighting are saying, let's have a ceasefire and give up territory because we've had enough. And as you get further away from the front line, that's when people keep saying, oh, we want to keep fighting. And, of course, armchair critics in the West sitting comfortably in Australia or America or whatever are saying, oh, you guys have got to keep fighting. But if you actually ask people on the ground close to the fighting, there's an awful lot of people there who have had enough and would prefer a ceasefire and give up the ground. So as she says, because we are primates who evolved in small social groups, humans often have trouble feeling empathy for that suffering until it enters into our own immediate circle, our own city, our own house, our own sons, brothers and fathers going out to fight and never coming home. 
So this war has become like a game for people, a vehicle from which to promote their political ideologies and masturbate their propaganda-induced good guys versus bad guys fantasies, a team sport where they can cheer on the total recapture of all annexed territories in eastern Ukraine from anonymous Sheba avatar accounts online to pass time in their meaningless lives. She gets quite poetic, Johnston, but good point. I think. The, the question is whether this is just appeasement, as Britain and France did with Hitler in the Munich Accord, whether Russia will actually Keep ever ab- abide. Well, yeah, or, or they will, they'll cease, they'll regroup, and then they'll attack again. Mm. You know, it, is a ceasefire actually in Ukraine's long-term interest? Or is this just an excuse for uh, Putin to regroup and prepare for the next assault? Mm. But do you think if they stop for a couple of years and allowed a build-up of defensive forces that Putin would have another crack at it? It wouldn't surprise me. Putin, I think, has made clear that Ukraine Mm. is a breakaway province that he considers is Russian Mm -hmm. and that he doesn't see Ukraine as a valid state. Mm. I don't know that Putin will ever be satisfied. Oh, well. Uh, So unless you have NATO sitting on his doorstep, which is apparently what kicked off the whole thing, the only thing that keeps Ukraine independent is a an, an alliance of forces arrayed against Russia. Mm. And, and, you know, at best it's going to be the former Soviet states who are afraid of Russia, who ally together, and Western Europe and America stays out, possibly supplying arms. That's going to be your best case. But I'm sure that, you know, NATO will be pushing to be in there. Mm. Well, I feel for the people on the front line and I can well understand them saying enough's enough. Okay, let, let him have the Donbass and Crimea and let's just stop for a while because I'm sort of sending sons and, sons and daughters and old men the, and old women off to... The UN, the UN reporters, the UN investigators who are in there mm. who are reporting on war crimes... And, and really, would you want to be in an area that was ceded to Russia if that's been going on? If you're in the Donbass region. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I wouldn't. But I can understand the others saying, sorry, did our best, but we give in. So mm. I, I, I understand the sentiment. I also just think the point is it's really easy when you're not the one having to do the fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It really is a case where the West is prepared to fight Russia until the last Ukrainian. So, as has always been the case. Mm. Who knows what peace negotiations are going on in the background? We will never know, probably. In the same way that we never really knew about what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis for about 25 years. So, dear listener, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, essentially a deal was done in secret that Soviets would withdraw from Cuba provided the US removed its missile bases in Turkey. And nobody knew about that part of the deal about the missile bases in Turkey. And it only came out some 20 or 25 years later. So, yeah, and there was active work by Kennedy and his brother to hide it from everybody. 
And in fact, the Soviet Premier sent a letter to Kennedy, a handwritten letter saying that, look, I understand why you've got to keep this delicate situation secret about Turkey. And and Robert Kennedy said, I don't want to keep this letter. If I keep this, who knows who'll get hold of it, take it back, and he handed it back to the Soviet ambassador or whatever and said, because I, I guess they had freedom of information or whatever, other other mm-hmm. rules, and he said, he said, who knows where and when such letters can surface and somehow be published, and the appearance of this document could cause irreparable harm to my political career in the future. That is why we request that you take this letter back. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. Not as much harm as a bullet did. Yes, yeah. By the way, did you watch that documentary at all? The one, oh, who's the, who's the famous movie director who? Oh, yeah, um, Kubrick? Uh, yeah, I think so. On whether it's a assassination or JFK. No, I was thinking of Robert Kennedy, who was killed, oh, wasn't he? Yes, both of them were. Yeah, hmm? yeah. But back to John F. Kennedy. Do you think it was killed was by that assassinated. guy? Or, yeah. Do you think it was as it was being publicised, or what do you reckon the odds are? There were certainly rumours about the mafia and hmm. JFK. Hmm. So if if it was a conspiracy, it was probably them. But I think that a conspiracy has remained that secret for that long is highly unlikely. Mm. I think the conspiracy is that he was wanting to withdraw from Vietnam or not get into Vietnam or something like that, and it might have been the military who right. he was, he was well, trying he, to. Well, he screwed up Bay of Peaks, didn't he? Mm. So that's the sort of motivation for it that's talked about. Mm. Yeah, uh, the, the usual rules apply. Mm. A secret is as well kept as the inverse square of the number of people who know. There you go, yeah. And a a plot of that size would have a lot of people involved. Yeah, which is why Nord Stream. Yes. I mean, how many people are required to blow that up? I mean, you must have at least... Oh, 50? Yeah, I mean, at some stage that's got to be revealed by some of the players in that... It had to be a significant number of people involved in that, so... But again, this will be a short-term secret, and by short-term, yeah, five, ten years. Right, yep, yep. Yeah, and Alison after and that the, time, yeah. political damage is minimal. Alison, she says she has lolled on the grassy knoll. What do you reckon, Alison? Could you, got a, could you have got a shot off from the grassy knoll? Mm. All right, just quickly, submarines... Great article in the John Menergy blog, once again, talking about submarines. And it just repeats everything I've been saying about these goddamn submarines, but repeats that nuclear submarines are noisy because they rely on a reactor to power a steam engine with cooling pumps. Well, I thought the Americans had built convection cooling mm. and therefore the American submarines were a, a level quieter than the Soviet ones of the same generation because they'd use convection. What's convection cooling? So basically hot water rises, cold water sinks. Mm. And so if you design your system well enough, mm. you design it so that hot water, basically the, the, as your water heats up, it floats up, mm. and then you, you have your radiator at the top of the system, mm. and then as it cools, it comes back down and reheats into the, the boiler. Mm. Effectively... These things require um, pumps to be pumping the 
stuff around still. No, uh, or just again, what I, what I know is reading Tom Clancy, so take mm. with a grain of salt, but no, they had discovered a way of using convection to, to cool these nuclear reactors down mm. and therefore they didn't require the noisy pumps, mm. which is why certainly the SS, SSNs, SSBNs, the ballistic missile launchers, mm -hmm. uh, were effectively black holes. They were so quiet because they'd used that technology. Even though they were nuclear operated. Even though they were nuclear. Mm. Haven't heard that. Let me read from this article. This is particularly extravagant when modern conventionally powered submarines are much cheaper and far harder to detect. Nuclear submarines are noisy because they rely on a reactor to power a steam engine with cooling pumps, turbines, reduction gears and steam in the pipes. They also expel hot water that can be detected as can the wake on the surface when travelling at high speeds. Modern battery-powered submarines, which Australia perversely has no plans to get, maintain near-silent operation with what's called Air Independent Propulsion, AIP, supplied by a hydrogen fuel cell in Singapore's German submarines, um, a Stirling engine favoured by the Swedes, or in the case of the latest Japanese submarines, by advanced batteries with long endurance. So these submarines have great advantage of making the crew far safer than noisy nuclear ones. And there was an essay in the US Naval Institute's magazine Proceedings in 2018 where basically the US Navy needed to consider acquiring some quiet, inexpensive diesel-electric submarines and the ability of these quiet submarines was demonstrated in 2005 when a Swedish submarine sank many US nuclear fast attack subs, destroyers, frigates and cruisers in some joint exercises. So they performed quite well in those. And what do we get to here? The cost of the eight nuclear submarines at the moment, $171 billion, and possibly 200 billion for eight nuclear powered submarines. Whereas we could get 10 of the latest German submarines, same as what Singapore has got, for about 10 billion. A billion each. Smaller crew, more suitable to our shallow waters. And there was a, an article in the Washington Post that disclosed that. Our decision-making regarding nuclear-powered submarines has been heavily influenced by a clique of former US Navy admirals who were generously paid by the Australian government. So two retired US admirals and three former US Navy civilian leaders have played crucial roles as paid advisors to the government during its negotiations to acquire nuclear submarines. So... Gosh, we've got on the payroll two retired US admirals and three former US Navy civilian leaders, and funnily enough, their advice is to buy nuclear submarines from America. What, what a surprise. If you're interested in submarines, mm, yes. Smarter Every Day YouTube channel, yes. he did a series aboard a US missile sub. Right. So lots of information on how they live underwater for months at a time yeah how do they mm. generate oxygen 
how do they generate clean drinking water? So, uh, an interesting one on how sonar works, mm-hmm. which he keeps on hitting up against the, that's classified, I can't talk about that. Right. But uh, quite an interesting series. What's it called, Kim? Smarter Every Day. Every day. Smarter Every Day. Okay. Yeah, on the YouTubes. All right. I think we've reached 927, and apparently, according to Alison, she can see the moon. So, so it's time for us all to go outside and have a look. It is. It's time to end this podcast. And thanks for joining in in the chat room. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks to Scott for being with us for most of the time. But I think we're really going to have to get Scott's internet organised in future. We'll see what happens. So, Offer up some thoughts and prayers, people. Yes. All right. Okay, everybody. Thanks for joining in. Talk to you next week. Bye. For- and it's a good night from him. Thank you.